There are some people whom he will say in this first chapter who wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't know what they were talking about. And there are people who took the Old Testament and they, in essence, allegorized it. We have people who do that today. They say, oh, Genesis 1 through 11. I mean, you don't really believe that God literally created the world in six 24-hour days. You don't believe that there was an actual boat that Noah and all the animals actually got into, do you? Oh, that's not True, that's just mythos, that's myth, that's fable, that's parabolic to teach you some spiritual lesson. And Paul knew otherwise. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a study in the book of 1 Timothy, one of three pastoral epistles, letters from the Apostle Paul to two pastors, Timothy and Titus. These letters give instruction on church leadership, church government, and the conduct and the goal of the local church. Last week, we began a look at the man, Timothy. We've seen that Timothy was young. Nevertheless, he was commissioned by God to preach the gospel. As we pick up today, we get some insight into the lack of spiritual leadership on the part of Timothy's father, who was an unbeliever. Yet, under the tutelage of Paul, Timothy would have a spiritual father beyond compare. Timothy, whose physical father we have noted is a Greek unbeliever, but whose spiritual father is Paul himself. And so Paul describes him as my true child in the faith. It was their common Christian faith that had united them. And that's the way it is this morning. You know, Wednesday night we began a brand new class on evangelism and we asked people to stand up and about 15 different ethnic backgrounds were represented in that Wednesday night service alone. People from all kinds of walks of life. Why? Because God has made us a family. God has brought us together because of our spiritual relationship to one another. And even so, Paul and Timothy were not blood relatives, they were faith relatives. And Paul calls Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now this Greek word true is the Greek word genesios, which was used to describe a legitimate child. A child born within the confines of marital wedlock. And Paul refers to Timothy as his true child because he was absolutely sure of Timothy's spiritual pedigree and his abiding loyalty. Now, you know, there are people who come here who have made professions of faith either here or somewhere else, and I, I hope they're saved. I mean, they know all the right words. They have all the right theology. But some of them just seem to lack any real passion for the things of God. Now, it's very possible, as you know, to be quite orthodox, quite fundamental in the traditional use of the word in your theology and still be lost. It was Donald Gray Barnhouse who rightly said, there will be enough fundamentalists in hell to start a fundamentalist convention. But some people you know are born again. You know they are kindred spirits. 
You know that they've met the living God. And Paul knew that of Timothy. And so he calls him his Genesios, his true child. Timothy, who had been Paul's trusted companion, his apostolic delegate for well over 15 years by the time he writes this letter. And Timothy finds himself under some very heavy responsibility. He had been on mission trips with Paul to cities like Corinth and Thessalonica, but now he's in a permanent place, giving leadership to the people at Ephesus. And Paul hopes to come to him soon, as he states twice over in this letter. But before he comes in the interim, he gives him some very pointed advice and some helpful encouragement. And it doesn't come out of theory. Paul had been a believer for 30 years when he pens this letter. And so he writes to Timothy to reinforce Timothy's authority and his own authority as an apostle. Timothy would not read this letter alone. It would be read by the entire church. And those who were giving Timothy trouble needed to remember that he was their pastor, that God had put him there by apostolic appointment. In fact, this word commandment in verse 1 is a word that was used of a royal commission. Both Paul and Timothy had been commissioned by the king of kings. And while we are equal in the body of Christ, there's neither male nor female, slave nor Greek, Jew or Gentile. We're all one in Christ Jesus, Paul says. While we're equal, we have various roles we are to play. And I fear, feel and I fear that so many today have lost the biblical picture of a pastor and the respect that he is to be given because the calling that God has placed on his life. And so Paul reminds Timothy of grace, mercy, and peace that are available from God the Father and from the Son. Now you know that grace and peace were a customary Christian greeting in the first century, but here Paul adds mercy. But while they are to some extent a customary greeting, you can be certain that it's not mere verbiage because Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these three themes, grace, mercy, and peace, run all the way through this first letter. Grace, God's undeserved favor. Mercy, God's compassion, God's pity on a person, and peace, which flows from those two. Paul knew that Timothy would need grace to carry out the ministry that God had given him as a pastor. And he knew that when he would feel tempted to be weak or inadequate, that it would be God's compassion, his mercy that would sustain him. And that when he would find himself in the midst of conflict in some church situation, that God's peace could garrison his heart. That was a Timothy that, a message that Timothy needed, and it's a message that we need today. Now, Timothy was young, shy, in some ways inexperienced, handicapped from stomach ailments, and God's grace, mercy, and peace would be sufficient for him in every circumstance. Now, having already mentioned the main reason Paul left Timothy in Ephesus because of false teachers who were troubling the church, Paul, in essence, has seen a fulfillment of a prediction that he had made some years before. If you remember on one missionary journey, it's recorded in Acts 20. He gathered the elders together from Ephesus there on that beach at Miletus. And he warned them, be on your guard for yourself and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, 
to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Paul had predicted to the Ephesian church that they would be disturbed by false teachers. And that's exactly what has happened. And so Timothy is to remain on at Ephesus to do battle with the truth. It's the age-old task of contending for the truth. Now, you and I today know that there are many false teachers, many false prophets, many unbelievers who fill pulpits across America and throughout the world. Jesus told us it would happen in Matthew chapter 7. Men and women who either directly deny or directly distort the Word of God. And so there's a great need for Christian leaders, for pastors who will do precisely what Timothy was called to do in his day. He is not to run from the flock. He is to protect it. He is not to be silenced. He is to speak up. He is to silence these people who had come into the church with their error. So having considered the author, the recipient, and the underlying themes that run through the epistle, let's crack the door in verses 3 through 6, which really introduce us to the body of the epistle. In verses 3 through 6, Paul gives three characteristics of all false teaching. And if we can get a hold of these, we will be able to detect false teaching and false teachers so that we can avoid it ourselves and to protect God's people. He deals with its essential nature, he deals with its disastrous results, and he deals with its fundamental cause. So let's begin by considering the essential nature or the essential character of all false teaching. Let's think about its character. Now, false teaching took many forms in the early church, and it has taken many forms throughout church history and in our day as well. There are many and varied heresies. It's still a varied phenomena today. But there's one characteristic of false teaching that has come down through all the ages, and that is very simple. It is a deviation from the original revelation that God has given. So Paul writes in verse 3, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Now, as we consider the character, the essential nature of all false teaching, I want you to notice first that false teaching is characterized as strange doctrine. That's what he says. False teaching is characterized as strange doctrine. Now, there are five English words in our text, not to teach strange doctrine, that translate a single Greek word, heterodidaskalene. Now, these two Greek words bring two English words directly in our language. This is the Greek word heteros that means different. So we talk about a homosexual, homos, the same, versus a heterosexual, two people who are different. And then we speak of something that's didactic, something that is teaching in nature. And so we have our English word heterodoxy, that is to teach something that is different. And here this word, heterodidascaline, literally means to teach another doctrine or to teach something totally different. 
It's the same word that's used later on in chapter 6 and verse 3 when he says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, heterodidascaline. And so Timothy's job is to instruct these false teachers to stop what they are doing. He is to guard God's people. Now this word instruct is a military term. It was used of a high-ranking officer who commissions a lower-ranking officer. And the picture and point here is that Paul, who had been commissioned by Christ with Timothy, had been given marching orders to guard and to protect the false teaching that has come into the church. They were to put it out. They were to guard the people of God because verse 6 indicates that some who had listened to these false teachers were straying away from this truth, having entered into fruitless discussions. And so Timothy's job is to silence them. And so when you think of false teaching, remember first that false teaching is characterized as strange doctrine. We are to resist it like the plague. We are to hate it like a cancer. We are to excise it like a foreign body because sound doctrine is so important to God because it reflects what God is like. Very foolish Christians will often say, oh, doctrine, it's unimportant. Doctrine divides. Yes, it does divide. And rightly so. True doctrine is to separate those who teach false doctrine and those who make such an ignorant statement that doctrine has no role, that it is unimportant. And so we have scores of churches all across America who've gone to this seeker-sensitive mode that have turned the Lord's Day into a day when we entertain the lost to try to grow our numbers. We have all these people who want to be entertained, who want their ears tickled instead of submitting themselves to the solid, sound teaching of Scripture. And so 32 times in the Greek text, God will use the word doctrine, teacher, teaching, or like word. I know because I looked up every single one this week. And God wants you to think with sound doctrine because your picture of God is reflected by your doctrine of God. And when you take sound doctrine and you apply it to your life, it will change your life. But many preferred churches that don't teach sound doctrine, that don't open up the Word of God and rightly divide its truth, and they wonder why their life is such a mess and why their kids turn out so bad. False teaching is characterized as strange doctrine. But notice also, false teaching is characterized as a deviation from truth. It's characterized as a deviation from truth. So Timothy is charged by the Apostle Paul to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Of course, Paul's statement implies that there is an objective standard of truth, that there is a plumb line by which we can separate truth from error. And so heterodoxy is a deviation from the truth. It is unorthodox. And so we need to ask a question. If these people are not to teach strange or different doctrine, the question becomes, different from what? Well, look down in verses 9 and 10. He says, realizing the fact that law is not made for righteous man, but for those who are lawless 
and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else, that is, these people he mentions in this verse, are sinning and breaking the law of God in various ways. They are doing, he says, what is contrary to sound Doctrine. Add that, add that phrase on the slide. It's contrary to sound doctrine. That indicates that there is a body of truth that Paul calls in various ways the faith, the truth, the deposit, here, sound doctrine. There is a body of truth by which we can measure whether we are on or off target. Paul is asserting that he is to take the truth committed once and for all through the apostles, and he is to stand for it, and for those who add to it, who subtract it, who contradict Contradict it, who neglect it, they are to be silenced. And so Paul, throughout his epistle, gives this strong, sustained conviction because he knows it is essential for the health of the church. And so when Paul writes the church at Galatia, he says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different the King James says another gospel, which is really not another. And here the word, the first word for different or another that is translated is heteros, meaning another of a different kind, which is really not alos, one like the one we gave you. Paul is accusing the Galatians that they had embraced the gospel that is heteros. It is different. It is foreign from the one he gave them. It is a deviation from the gospel of grace which they had received. On another occasion, Paul rebuked the Corinthians for welcoming a false teacher or really false teachers who brought them another gospel with another spirit who gave them a different Jesus. Listen, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now this word different or another is the same word heteros. You know, some churches have a different Jesus. They speak of Jesus Christ just like we speak of him. But Paul says that Jesus they have is a different Jesus. It is a false spirit. It is a different gospel. It is another truth, which is really not the truth. And if the contemporary church understood this, we would be so much better off. Even the church fathers who immediately followed the apostles after their death, they never saw their authority as coming from their leadership. They always deferred in their writings to the scriptures. They always went back to what the apostles said. And the same principle is recognized by the early church and that in the second century, the New Testament canon was formed. They recognized, since so many other letters were being written, that they needed to bring all the letters that had been written together under one book, and so they compiled the canon of Scripture. And in so doing, and accepting some books as authoritative and others as defective, they saw that there was an objective standard that they went by. Now, the word canon 
comes from a Greek word that referred to a carpenter's measuring rule. It's something, it's a rule by which things are measured. And so the early church saw the need for a rule against which human opinions would be measured. And that rule was the teaching of the apostles. And so only those books that had been written by the apostles and only those books that had been directly commissioned by an apostle like Luke or Mark were the only books that were accepted into the canon of Scripture. The test of canonicity was apostolicity. Was this book written by an apostle or did it have an apostolic imprimatur on it? And the early church understood the principle. And so much of the confusion in the contemporary church, the liberal apostate church, and even amongst the true confessing church, is that we've lost this truth. We have given ourselves, knowingly or unknowingly, to the spirit of the age. And the spirit of the age is that there really aren't any absolutes. And so you cannot pronounce that some things are absolutely true, good, and right. And so we have a generation of spineless preachers with the backbone of a jellyfish who are afraid to stand up and tell their people what is right and what is wrong. And so we have a day when no one ever talks about heresy. I mean, when do you hear preachers talking about heresy and false teachers? Very rarely in our day. Why? Because they are not living according to an objective truth. Now, I'm not in favor of doing what the church had done in the 1400s by going on witch hunts for heretics. But as believers in the living word who believe in the absolute authority of the written word, we are to learn it. We are to hold up God's objective standard. And we will learn that we are called to separate from those who persist in error. Now, if you talk about that today, especially with these movements that want to unify everybody in the body of Christ and you stand for something, it doesn't matter if they believe they ordain homosexuals. It doesn't matter what they believe about this and believe about that. We need to love each other. We need to link arms with everybody. You take God's objective standard. You use it as the measuring rule by which those whom you will unite yourself to and some will call you harsh. Some will call you unloving. But you're actually the most loving person in the world because when you have that objective law that God has given in His Word and you hold it up before men, it becomes their tutor to lead them to faith in Christ, to deliver them out of the kingdom of wrath into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And so we have absolutely no liberty to teach heteros to discolane. The church is not to teach a different doctrine, a strange doctrine, other than the one found in Holy Scripture. And so Timothy, as a pastor, is to make sure that those who are doing that are silenced. Now, that's the essential character of false teaching. It is a deviation from revealed truth. Secondly, let's consider the disastrous consequences of false teaching. Look now, if you will, at verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure, for Ma- it's, I think it should say from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths 
and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, some of these people were occupying themselves with myths and endless genealogies. Now, Paul uh, recognizes that this was a common problem. In fact, Titus, whom he also writes a letter to in the New Testament, faced the exact same issue. So in Paul's letter to him, he says, This testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely, that they may be sound in faith. Not paying attention to Jewish myths. Now, the Greek word is muthos. It refers to myths or fables, and they are Jewish in origin. There were some people whom he will say in this first chapter who wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't know what they were talking about. And there are people who took the Old Testament and they, in essence, allegorized it. We have people who do that today. They say, oh, Genesis 1 through 11. I mean, you don't really believe that God literally created the world in six 24-hour days. You don't believe that there was an actual boat that Noah and all the animals actually got into, do you? Oh, that's not true. That's just mythos. That's myth. That's fable. That's parabolic to teach you some spiritual lesson. And Paul knew otherwise. And those false teachers had come into that church and he said, shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now I want you to notice that there are two results of false teaching. First, false teaching results in speculation. It results in speculations instead of faith. Now, apparently, the false teachers were using the Old Testament law, and especially the genealogies, to manufacture all kinds of novelties. I met this fellow out in the parking lot one Sunday after church, and he told me how I'd preached my sermon all wrong. And he opened up that passage of Genesis and he said, well, this means this and that means so and so. And I'm thinking, where does this guy get this stuff from? And he had taken and allegorized the word of God. That's what these people were doing, especially the genealogies. And they were taking these new doctrines that were not plainly taught in the word of God and leading people astray. Instead of answering questions, the false teachers create questions. They were giving rise to miracles speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith now this word translated mere speculation in other translations like the King James is translated they were giving rise to questions the New Living Translation says endless speculations the Jerusalem Bible says irrelevant doubts and this sort of false teaching based on endless, endless myths and genealogies, the allegoration of the word of God, led to all kinds of speculations. And instead of, of getting the people engrossed in what God said, things that God had plainly said, they were getting people involved in things that God hadn't raised. And so they were not promoting faith, only doubts. Instead of getting people to occupy their minds with, with truth, they're getting them to occupy their minds with speculations. They were not promoting God's saving plan, the administration of God, which is by faith. False teachings result in speculations instead of faith. That's why it's vital that the church stay the course that God has set out in His Word. Our truth and spiritual compass. 
Unfortunately, too often, too many people populating today's pulpits go down rabbit trails that stray from truth and lead entire congregations away from truth and the only hope of salvation and into the despair of hell. Does your church believe the Bible is 100% accurate and literal? Or does it teach that much of it is allegorical and is meant to portray concepts to the reader? The answer could make an eternal difference in your life. To listen again to today's message entitled, Teaching Sound Doctrine, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program 1TM1. Tomorrow we'll look at the second result of false teachings. Join us then as we search the scriptures. Mm-hmm.